morning you're listening to 2XXFM. The program is Subject ACT, where we unpack local current affairs in the ACT. It's Monday the 22nd of February. I'm Becca Posterino. Today I further explore the issue of violence in the ACT through a legal lens. I spoke with Associate Professor at the University of Canberra School of Law and Justice, Dr Lorana Bartels, to examine the question of law reform in regards to violence and other approaches to address this complex issue. I also met with Acting Sergeant Russell Kafer of the ACT Regional Targeting Team, who shared first-hand experience of policing violent crimes in the ACT and the importance of community participation regarding law enforcement. You're listening to 2XXFM. The program is Subject ACT, and I'm executive producer and presenter of Monday's edition of the program, Becca Posterino. This morning I'm talking to Associate Professor at University of Canberra's School of Law and Justice, Dr Lorana Bartels. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Becca. Thanks for being here with us. In relation to the one-hit assault that was experienced on New Year's Eve this year, from a legal perspective, what is your reaction on the recurrence of alcohol and drug-fueled violence in Canberra? Well, there's a few things, and I'm a lawyer and a criminologist. One thing I wanted to check, do we have a real problem in the mm. ACT at the moment? So I went and looked at the figures, the police figures. Actually, crime is down in this area. So um, in this doesn't include the offence we're talking about or the alleged offence we're talking about but in the September 2015 quarter which is the most recent set of figures mm. there are 116 offences against the person so that's some kind of violence involving alcohol. Mm-hmm. Now I looked at a year earlier and that mm-hmm. was 153 and a year earlier was 242 so we're actually at a figure that's less than half what it was two years ago so we're not in some raging epidemic that's actually heading down and, and that's true across Australia actually. And the statistics are reflecting, I guess, the reported incidents? Yeah, so that's stuff that's come to the attention of police. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that there aren't things that don't come to police attention, but if we use the same measure, Mm. i.e. what's going towards police, and in fact, there's some evidence that people are more willing to report these sorts of crimes, but even so, the numbers are down. That's, you know, that's really a good story. That's not saying that when those matters occur, that it's that it's okay or that we yes. should tolerate or that it's not extremely yes. traumatic for those victims, but we're seeing less rather than more. So I think often people hear about a crime and they think, oh, it's all getting worse. Mm. That's not the case. So what I was going to say in terms of legal responses is that the answer is not to create more specific kinds of crime. So your listeners are probably aware that in some other jurisdictions there'll be a specific offence of a one-punch death or a one-punch assault. Mm. The law in the ACT already has plenty of scope for prosecuting these people. Mm. But we have a range of assault types and whether alcohol was involved or not can be taken into account in relation to both the commission of the offence and sentencing if they're found guilty. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, when, when people think of what can the law do, two standard responses in the media are we need a new specific offence and we don't or, or we need to toughen up sentences mm-hmm. and we don't need to do that either. That's actually not at all an effective way of dealing with this sort of behaviour. Is law reform necessary in relation to this particular issue? I wouldn't say it's a it's a massively pressing concern. Um, I mean, there are things one can do to, to 
tinker with this stuff. So, for mm-hmm. example, one can, uh, in we were going to talk later, I know, about domestic violence. There mm-hmm. were changes to the law last year around the offence of choking mm-hmm. because there was evidence that the way the law was framed here in the ACT, it wasn't capturing domestic violence situations where the perpetrator choked the victim. I won't go into the, the technicalities, sure. but sure. there was a new offence created to capture what actually takes place. So mm-hmm. there's sometimes things like that. But it's not really the most pressing concern of how Mm. do we deal with this sort of stuff. Mm. The law can already adequately prosecute these sorts of Mm -hmm. offences when they occur. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other areas of law that can be changed. So, for example, around responsible surface of alcohol Mm -hmm. or licensing laws, but that's not the criminal law as Mm -hmm. such. In my research for this particular story, it appeared that there was a significant recurrence of weekend detention. Can you speak to that and comment on the effectiveness of, I guess, the prosecution? Is is that a, an effective measure to deter potential perpetrators from, from such an assault or crime? Okay, sure. So, um, so weekend detention, which is generally known as periodic detention, the ACT is the last place in Australia that has it and, and it's being abolished as of about March this year. The reasons for that model, and there's a whole lot of reasons as to why it became popular and then fell out of favour, but the notion was that people who were employed or studying and had connections to the community, they were, you know, might be the main breadwinner for their family, mm-hmm. they were in stable housing, that it was more sensible to have them in the community mm-hmm. Rather sure. than sending them away to jail. The rationale was that they would be going to it's uh, out at Simonston, go there mm-hmm. on the Friday night, mm-hmm. come out on the Sunday afternoon, and during the week they'd go on having a functional life and contributing to the sure. to their smaller and wider community. Obviously, you know, in terms of was it an appropriate sentence in each and every case, I don't know because I don't know all the circumstances of sure. the cases you were looking at. But recently, in this context, I was looking at what are the sentencing practices in the ACT mm-hmm. for these sorts of crimes. So the offence that the man who's alleged to have committed the New Year's Eve assault has mm-hmm. been charged with is recklessly inflicting grievous bodily harm. Mm-hmm. Now that carries a maximum penalty of 13 years imprisonment. And I went and had a look at what are the sentencing practices and there were 18 offenders sentenced for this between July 2012 and September 2015. So that's three years and three months. Again, 18 offenders. I'm not saying those cases weren't serious, but again, it's Mm -hmm. not a runaway out-of-control epidemic. Mm -hmm. Of those, 11 received a full-time prison sentence, and the most common prison sentence length was six years. Then there were three partly suspended sentences, so that's where they spend some time in prison Mm -hmm. and then some time in the community, and then there were four fully suspended sentences. So for that particular charge, there weren't actually any offenders who got periodic detention. But as I say, most of the offenders, just over 60%, got a full-time prison sentence, and most of those sentences were for several years. Mm. It's not about playing judge to these individuals. It's more about the discussion of the effectiveness of the sentencing in relation to these types of crimes and the overlap with domestic and family violence crimes. We've touched upon law reform. Mm-hmm. I just want to go into the details of law reform in relation to lockout and 3am licensing for venues. Do you think this is an effective reform, such as the reform led by Barry O'Farrell's government in New South Wales last year or the year prior? Look, it really does appear to be. The evidence is very positive. The New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research went and evaluated those measures mm-hmm. and they found that following the reforms, there was a 32% reduction in assaults in the King's Cross area, which mm-hmm. is most of your listeners would know is that kind of yes. area where there were some pretty awful 
um, incidence and also a 26% reduction in the Sydney CBD mm-hmm. entertainment precinct. Now, interestingly, some of the people when that law was introduced, including myself, kind of said, oh, but surely people will just go to the next area over. The Bureau looked at that. There was no increase in assaults in those nearby areas. Okay. So it wasn't just what, what we would call a displacement effect where you might mm. have people saying, okay, well, I can't, I can't drink till, uh, till four in the morning in Civic, so I'll go to Woden. That wasn't sure. happening. What's also interesting about that study is that there was also a smaller but still significant reduction in assault across the rest of New South Wales. And right. New South Wales is obviously a big place. Sure. But there was a 9% decrease in assault across the state. So it could be that those laws started to change the discourse Mm. on consumption of alcohol. But Mm -hmm. also one of the aspects of those laws, which um, people might not be as aware of, is that after 10pm across the state, you couldn't sell takeaway alcohol. So you you couldn't go down to the bottle and buy a case of beer from 10pm onwards. Mm-hmm. So those were changes across the state. It's hard to know whether, I and mean, their analysis wasn't able to mm-hmm. um, determine yet whether that was what changed the statewide assault rates or whether it was different attitudes towards mm-hmm. alcohol or whether it was something else entirely. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. But again, this is a measure around licensing, who can mm-hmm. go to pubs, when you can leave, how much you can drink, and that is seeming to be a really positive step. Mm. The ACT government has said that it is looking at licensing reforms. They've got some recommendations from recent reports and they're looking at them as, as we speak. Do you think this is an effective law reform? It certainly seems to be based on that evidence. I mean, it's not the only solution by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. It's only part of the puzzle, mm-hmm. but it does seem to be a really po- promising part of mm-hmm. the puzzle. Do you think there are any other laws that do need to be addressed that haven't been identified as yet in your, in your view? There are a number of things one can do. Generally, this is a state and territory issue, but one area where the Commonwealth does have a role to play is around taxing of alcohol. Mm-hmm. So there's research that price signals for alcohol do impact on consumption mm-hmm. of alcohol and likewise regulation of advertising. Some of that's at the state and territory level. Or mm-hmm. at the Commonwealth level. If you double, for argument's sake, the price of a drink, that's, there's evidence that shows that that does have an impact, particularly on heavy drinkers, and the increasing alcohol taxes mm-hmm. reduces death and injury. We also know that alcohol consumption is concentrated amongst the subpopulation. So, mm-hmm. for example, and the top 5% of drinkers drink more than a third of the alcohol. So mm-hmm. it's not like everyone's having one or two glasses of wine. There's it's some a small proportion of the community. Yeah, that proportion of the community are actively targeted by mm-hmm. alcohol marketing and sure. advertising. So if you sure. change the laws around what they can do, I mean, obviously, I grew up in the era when you could advertise cigarettes. <laughs> we got rid of that. One could go down that path in terms of advertising and glamorous images of alcohol. Sure. Chief Executive of Fair Australia, Michael Thorne, argued that cheaper wines used for consumption and in particular preloading prior to even attending venues was a significant issue within the evidence that he'd assessed. How do you speak to that? Do you think that is an excise tax? Is that a an effective measure? Would that be something tangible that we could certainly look at from a legal point of view? Oh, look, yes. I mean, you know, certainly it'd be easy to, to make those legal changes. I'm happy to be guided by the fair evidence that indicates that that would be effective. One potential downside, you know, one would have to be careful in, in how one um, shaped the laws, is mm-hmm. you wouldn't want someone who thinks, well, okay, it's going to cost twice as much for me to drink alcohol now, so I'll just go out and get ice or get something else. You don't mm-hmm. want to displace someone's substance abuse from one kind 
to mm. another, either within alcohol or some other kind of drug. We also need to, and this is another legal issue, we need to look at why people are consuming this mm-hmm, stuff in the first mm-hmm. place. Is it an undiagnosed mental issue? Is there a Absolutely. lack of other options for how to spend one's leisure? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it about our ideas of masculinity? Is mm-hmm. it our ideas that we don't want to look like a wuss if we're not drinking mm-hmm. our friends on the table? I mean, these mm-hmm. are not legal issues, but they're a big part sure. of the solution, mm-hmm. just saying we'll make alcohol more expensive sure. or even we make it so you can't get a drink after three in the morning is not really getting to the heart mm-hmm. of why do some individuals consume substances, whether mm-hmm. it be alcohol, ice, pot, whatever, mm-hmm. to such extreme level mm-hmm. and how can we try and reframe their activities, which are obviously sure. bad for them mm-hmm. physically and psychologically, mm-hmm. quite apart from the impact on the rest of the community. That leads to the next question, which you've really touched upon, and law reform is just one aspect of this complex issue. What needs to change at large, and can law reform shift the cultural norms? You suggested relevantly that addressing the rationale and the reasoning behind why some individuals, some minority individuals, consume substances to extremes, can the law impact these cultural norms? And we've had some some really clear examples in relation to behaviours such as drink driving, driving without a seatbelt, smoking near children. You can use the law to drive social change and social behaviours, but it's not the be-all and Mm -hmm. end-all. You need Mm -hmm. public education campaigns, you need discussion, broader discussion about these issues like how do we socialise? How do we even identify ourselves? I think we have a culture Mm -hmm. where we have uh, this notion that for some people it's not a good night if you can remember it. We have a respect (laughs) for someone who can, you know... Obliteration. Obliteration. And that's that's really problematic. We we should be looking to countries overseas that don't have a, a culture and tradition of drinking to excess. From a legal perspective, what are the key issues we need to recognise and address as a community in relation to drug and alcohol fueled violence? This is across all forms of violence, not specific to the one-punch assault. What, in your view, needs to be addressed? Well, it might be a bit funny to say, as I'm a lawyer, the law is is really a relatively small part of the Mm. solution. I mean, certainly tougher sentences aren't a solution. They come far too late in the equation. And the notion that the threat of a longer sentence will deter someone who's intoxicated, it just doesn't accord with the research. Mm. It doesn't accord with what we know about how your brain works when you're intoxicated. And it doesn't accord with what we know about deterrence research. So there's really solid research that shows that increasing the sentence doesn't change people's behaviour. Increasing the thought that they're going to be caught does. So, you Mm. know, if we all know that there are speed cameras, we you know, to put our foot on the brake. <laughs> if we think that maybe we'll get caught and we don't really know what the penalty is if we do get caught and we think maybe it could be in the context of an assault, maybe it's two years. Saying, well, I don't know if it's two years or four years or six years, that doesn't impact on people's behaviours. If they know that they're going to get caught, that's what impacts on their behaviour. It's really not about tougher sentence and that's the kind of key message I would like to say sure. that I know that people want to hear hear that line. It just doesn't work and mm. we're deluding ourselves if we think so. But there are other ways of making communities safer. Again, they're not sort of big-ticket law and order items. They are things like licensing laws. Some of it's even more banal stuff, like lighting around 
bus interchanges, mm. bus timetables, having transit offices mm. near the bus stop or near taxi cab ranks. Mm. That's sort of stuff around violence in, in the street mm. context. In the domestic, Visibility and access to transport. Absolutely, mm. all of those things. In the domestic setting and also to a lesser extent, but also it's also relevant in the, um, in the context of violence in the street, we need to look at how people treat each other. We need mm. to look at developing an understanding of respectful relationships. Mm. And this is something that young people need to be taught from school onwards so Education. that both would-be perpetrators and would-be be victims know how to avoid those things. Mm. And there's been some interesting research being done at the moment in the UK around getting men who are domestic violence perpetrators to go to just a short intervention. But it, it, it's been shown through this study, which is being done at the University of Cambridge as well, that it's reducing their reoffending behaviour. And mm. what they're learning in those sorts of programs, and we have those programs here too that are run by Relationships Australia, it's giving people who participate them in them, generally men, it's giving them training in things like non-violence mm. and non-threatening behaviour, in respect, in support, in mm-hmm. honesty, in learning how to negotiate, learning mm. how to be fair. Mm. These are the, the cornerstones mm. of a healthy functioning society, whether mm. it's the way you interact with your partner or your children or the, your employer or mm. your employee or person in the street. Mm. And so we need to focus our energies there. Dr Patel, thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to have you on the program again. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Becca. Talk to you soon. was Chumbawamba with 1997 classic pop track, Tub Thumping. Before we heard from University of Canberra Associate Professor at the School of Law and Justice, Dr Lorana Bartels, on the issue of law reform relating to violence in the ACT. Coming up, Acting Sergeant Russell Kafer of the Regional Targeting Team at ACT Policing for a frontline insight into policing and managing violence. You're listening to 2XXFM. The program is Subject ACT. I'm Becca Postorino. 
We're talking with Acting Sergeant Russell Kafer from the Regional Targeting Team Canberra. He is a sergeant, a police officer in the region. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Becca. In reference to drug and alcohol-related violence, is there adequate protection and authority for police on the ground to manage these complex situations? Um, Police have a a number of tools at hand that we use for situations of violence in the city. For example, we have power of discretion to issue criminal infringement notice, which we call SINs, C-I-N. We we can give these out to people committing offences as a way to deter them or get them out of the city. Are they an effective measure? Are they proving to be, in your your view, on the ground? Yeah, we find them as an effective tool to Mm -hmm. curb people's Mm behaviour. find that an an infringement with a monetary penalty is quite well. Mm -hmm. certainly hurts people in the the hip pocket. Mm -hmm. Some of these fines can become quite a hefty fine. So what are the key issues for the community to be aware of in reference to drug and alcohol fueled violence? Drug and alcohol, as as everybody knows, inhibits behaviour and people's ability to make good decisions. And where we're seeing that when people get highly intoxicated, Mm -hmm. these are evident on on the weekends that we work early hours of the morning, an intoxicated person becomes more vulnerable, mm-hmm. whether influenced by drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. This also leads to people becoming a victim of crime, whether they're being the offender mm-hmm. or also the victim. Mm-hmm. As a sergeant on the ground, how do you mentally prepare for a potentially volatile situation? This is a big question and maybe a, a whole program needs to be dedicated to this. It- it is a big, it is a big mm. question, and it's the sort of thing you try to prepare for. Mm. Go through scenarios in your head of what's what's happened previously, mm-hmm. what you would do differently, mm-hmm. and then you can walk around a corner and faced with a situation where everything you thought you would do just goes out the window, mm. and you you have to respond and act accordingly. Mm. Things can be you think one way, and then all of a sudden mm. the whole situation will change, and you have to adjust your behaviour and what you're doing appropriately. The one-punch assaults are a unique situation and you're called to those situations. So yep. is there a different mental preparation that you need for something like that in terms of keeping other bystanders in the community calm in those situations? We rely on our skill, our experience and, and our training a lot to deal with those situations. So mm-hmm. we, we will turn up to an, uh, to an incident and we have to assess that as best as possible and, and take the appropriate action, whether it be dealing with a, with a high, uh, volatile mm-hmm. and aggressive crowd mm-hmm. or dealing with somebody who, who's lying on the ground unconscious so mm-hmm. we, we just have to adapt what we're doing in our policing skills mm-hmm. to look after the community. How should the community respond if they are bystanders to a potential conflict or assault? If they're out and they're seeing something happening, most people these days have phones on them. Mm-hmm. We ask them to call triple zero if it's becoming mm-hmm. a violent situation. The regional targeting team, mm-hmm. which I'm part of, we will rotate around the city mm-hmm. and also the outlying licensed premises. Mm-hmm. So if they see us, come come approach us, come and say, look, we saw somebody, mm-hmm. give us a description, he was acting aggressive, we'll go and have a chat to that person. Mm-hmm. It may mean that person is directed to leave the city earlier on in the evening, mm-hmm. so he's or he or she mm-hmm. isn't put in a situation that they become violent and aggressive to another person. There is often a wall between the community and police. There's a lot of, there is a protection element to your work. When you spoke about approaching police, there may be some trepidation. What do you say to that? Is there a way to quell the community to invite them into that conversation with police officers if they do um, have an instinct about conflict? Or Sure. Um, I think that's an important issue. We try to be as engaged with the community as much as we mm-hmm. can. It's a very important part of our role, being the, the, the alcohol side of things mm-hmm. and the violence. Generally, people are very happy to come and talk to mm-hmm. police, whether mm-hmm. it be, you know, we had a lot of people wanting to take selfies now with us when we're out, <laughs> in, the, out in the streets. There's a few more officers who are, who are willing to do that than others. Sure. But I, I think that that 
those barriers are probably wearing down a bit these days. I, I've seen a, a stronger attitude towards police coming and talking to us, engaging with us. Mm-hmm. We often get people come and advise off of a situation, mm-hmm. which then allows us to contact the, the people who monitor the security cameras in the mm-hmm. city mm-hmm. to watch a situation or watch a person, mm-hmm. giving us time to get to that person or that location mm-hmm. and deal with the incident then and mm-hmm. there. So rather than us being a totally reactive mm-hmm. police force, the community has allowed us to be a proactive resource and, and we can get to a situation, protect those who are around mm-hmm. and deal with the situation as we need to. Do you think social media has a role in that uh, wearing down of that wall and or perhaps opening up those lines of communication? I'm certainly no expert on social yeah. media. However, I think I think social media has been a good tool mm-hmm. um, for the community and ACT policing. I think it's working well together. What's so. the most effective tool that people use when there is a potential incident, is it... From my experience, it's just the, the word on the street, like we'll, we'll okay. be out and we'll hear that there's something happening. Somebody will be calling police or flagging us down mm-hmm. in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. Being on foot, we, we hear what's going on. Mm-hmm. The way we work is we rotate the city in teams mm-hmm. of three mm-hmm. and we're, we're generally seen everywhere and people sure. have a perception, which is, which is true and accurate, is mm-hmm. that we are everywhere on, mm-hmm. on the weekend nights. Mm-hmm. We're around, we're around the corner. Mm-hmm. If, if something happens, people only need to sort of look up and we're, we're coming around the corner to help. Mm-hmm. How can the community protect itself from drug and alcohol-fueled violence? I know abstinence would be an extreme. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good one. <laughs> Probably looking after your mates and being responsible mm-hmm. for, for what you're doing. If you're out with a group of friends um, and somebody's had too much to drink, mm-hmm. somebody needs to take the initiative and go, okay, well, he's had enough, let's go home. Mm-hmm. Start being responsible for your friends and, and your mm-hmm. actions as well. Mm-hmm. We've encouraged licensed venues to do that. Mm-hmm. We've had education sessions with 80 plus licensed venues across mm-hmm. Canberra mm-hmm. and we've promoted a safe summer message. So mm-hmm. not, not to serve intoxicated people mm-hmm. in, in the venues. Mm-hmm. If they're being antisocial or too intoxicated, ask them to leave. Mm-hmm. If these people aren't leaving the premises, we, we're asking those venues to call police mm-hmm. and then we will come and deal with the situation whether it be giving them a, uh, an infringement notice for abusing staff, which mm-hmm. is $220, or a infringement notice for not leaving the premises mm-hmm. when asked, which mm-hmm. is $440, or both. So mm-hmm. $660 starts hurting the community mm-hmm. or, or a person mm-hmm. in the hip pocket, and hopefully that will start changing their attitudes. Mm-hmm. The statistics reflect a decline in the incidence of mm-hmm. one-punch um, assaults in Canberra. I spoke to a law expert, Dr. Lorana Battelles, this morning, and she said there's actually been a declining crime which is a is a good point this incident uh, shouldn't sensationalize the issue at large but it it does call to mind how disturbing it is and asking the question that you know how should we address this issue as a community and what does need to change in your view as a, a sergeant on the ground what can change to positively impact this particular issue it's a whole community issue. You know, it's an issue for police, ambulance services, and also the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think attitude needs to change. Mm-hmm. The police certainly aren't out there to ruin people's fun. We're not mm-hmm. the fun police. We're, mm-hmm. we're there to make sure everybody goes out, has fun, mm-hmm. um, and gets home safely. And that's, that's our goal at the end of the night. We would rather not have to deal with any violent situation and go home safely ourselves. Mm-hmm. We've engaged, as I said previously, with the licensed venues and we mm-hmm. encourage them to be responsible as well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the responsibility needs to come back on, on patrons and people mm-hmm. who are out drinking mm-hmm. and they need to start being a bit more responsible for, for their actions and what they're doing mm-hmm. and also that of their, their friends and, and colleagues. But I spoke to a victim of, an, of assault yesterday and he, he mentioned that the perpetrators who unfortunately haven't been caught came out of a venue and were asked to be removed from the venue from, obviously, staff and landed in Garima Place. Now, this is a scenario that I'm talking about and I'm interested from a police perspective. They 
from the legal perspective, those people were exited from the venue. They're on the street. It was early in the morning and the victims were intoxicated themselves. Maybe their awareness was marred by the impacts of their consumption of alcohol. My question is, how can we protect, okay, these people are intoxicated? That's not a crime to be intoxicated. They were walking innocently through Garima Place. They were assaulted. Three of them were assaulted. They had no protection and obviously being three in the morning, the regional targeting team weren't available. This incident calls into question the key problems surrounding this is that those spontaneous and unpredictable moments where you are just an innocent person having a good time. Yes, you could consume less to be more aware, but perhaps not. Mm. You were just the innocent victim of a violent assault. What do you say to this? It's it's an unfortunate event at the moment, with across the streets of, of streets of Canberra and possibly Australia. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing it more and more. I, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know the whole situation behind um, the incident. Sure. Um, I don't know if these people were evicted for just being mm-hmm. antisocial or were mm-hmm. they being violent inside the club. So mm-hmm. it's it's a hard thing to comment mm-hmm. on. I don't know mm-hmm. the whole circumstances behind mm-hmm. it. Usually it's words are said and then somebody takes it the wrong way, and that's mm-hmm. usually the way things go. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can't comment on that at all from a community perspective it's just knowing what to do in those situations you can't be there for everyone in every moment cctv was mentioned as a possible solution cameras are a way of providing a deterrent as well do you think that's an effective measure there there are cameras throughout the city as it is and throughout most of canberra Mm -hmm. especially the entertainment areas Mm -hmm. most of the clubs actually nearly all the clubs across canberra Mm -hmm. and the the higher risk venue venues have cameras and have Mm -hmm. cctv which they provide to us very willingly and, and Mm -hmm. are very helpful in our investigations. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly there as a deterrent, and I believe that has an effect. But I think that people will get to a state of mind where they're in- intoxicated by alcohol or drugs that they don't know what they're doing and their mm-hmm. judgment and their inhibitions are gone mm-hmm. and, and they just act accordingly. Thank you so much Pleasure. for being part of this discussion, Sergeant Russell Kafer, and we'd really like to have you onto the program again if you'd like to Love chat to, come back. to me. Well, thank you very much Great. for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Becca. Thanks thank so much. Thank you. That was Acting Sergeant Russell Kafer of the Regional Targeting Team, ACT Policing, who offered his personal insights into policing violence in the ACT. We've come to the end of our program. That was the final instalment of our three-part program series on violence in the ACT on Monday's edition of Subject ACT. If you would like to tune into previous programs, please like or join our Subject ACT Facebook page and follow the links to our SoundCloud site or visit soundcloud.com forward slash Subject ACT to listen to previously aired programs at your leisure. Thanks for your company this morning. Tomorrow, Doug Dobing joins Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT and meets renowned journalist and cancer support ambassador and campaigner Chris Kimball. Chris shares his experiences of life in Canberra, some of his stories as an esteemed journalist, and his very personal battle with cancer. Coming up, Community Radio Network's All the Best. I'm Becca Posterino for 2XXFM Subject ACT. Enjoy your day.